Abraham received God's promise of justification and eternal inheritance, not by something he did in reference to the law, but by means of believing what God had promised. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new eight-part series from Romans chapter 4, entitled A Portrait of Faith. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is at the heart of the Christian faith. Simply put, it means that salvation is not attained by good works, but rather by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But what does this kind of faith, true saving faith, look like? Well, as Tom will teach, in Romans 4, Paul goes all the way back in biblical history to Abraham to illustrate several qualities that define true and saving faith. These qualities are not only true of Abraham, but of every person who has repented and believed in Jesus Christ. In part one today, Tom explains what justifying faith truly looks like so that we as Christians can have full assurance and confidence in our salvation. Well, Tom, why is it necessary for every Christian to examine our lives to make sure that we have true biblical faith? There are so many people in our world who claim they have some kind of faith but the problem is there are a lot of faiths that will not save you. There is faith in the wrong God, the wrong Jesus. There is a historical faith in the true Jesus and the true God, a faith like the demons have. They believe the facts are true. There is the faith that's based on a supposed miracle or, or a faith that's temporary and fleeting like those described in the parable of the soils. And the list goes on and on. But only authentic, true, saving faith is when the Spirit of God regenerates the heart of a dead sinner and makes them alive in Christ. That faith is the faith of Abraham, and that is true Christianity. And every person must have that faith in order to be saved. That's why it's so important that we understand it. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. Several years ago, I read an interesting story. That story is captured in the Smithsonian Magazine in these words. It was a quiet, humid Monday morning in Paris on the 21st of August, 1911. Three men were hurrying out of the Louvre. It was odd since the museum was closed to visitors on Mondays and odder still with what one of them had under his jacket. They were Vincenzo Perugia, Vincenzo Perugia, I should say, and three brothers, young Italian handymen. They'd come to the Louvre on Sunday afternoon and hidden themselves overnight in a storeroom near the Salon Carré, a gallery stuffed with Renaissance paintings. In the morning, wearing white workman's smocks, they'd gone into the Salon Carré, the article says, and seized a small painting off the wall, slipped out of the gallery, down a back stairwell, through a side entrance, and onto the streets of Paris. These four men had stolen the Mona Lisa. 
At the time of the heist, Leonardo da Vinci's masterpiece was far from the most visited item in the museum. Leonardo had painted the portrait around 1507, but it wasn't until the 1860s that art critics began to point out that the Mona Lisa was one of the finest examples of Renaissance painting. However, their judgment hadn't really begun to influence the people at large, and so most of the people who came to visit the Louvre in those days didn't go to see the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa remained missing for over two years. In December of 1913, after 28 months, Perugia took a train from Florence where he tried to sell the painting to an art dealer there who promptly called the police. Perugia was arrested, and after a brief trial in Florence, he pleaded guilty and ended up serving only eight months in jail. While it wasn't popular when it was originally stolen back in the early 1900s, today it is the most popular item in the Louvre. In a single year, every year, eight million tourists line up to see it. Now the question for for me as I think about that is why has the portrait of a plain, dare I say even homely, 16th century Florentine woman influenced the portraits of every major painter from that time till this? Well, according to the director of the Louvre, The reason is Leonardo's incomparable artistic mastery. His brushstrokes, if you could look at the brushstrokes of Leonardo, and particularly on the Mona Lisa, under magnification, you would find that they are the most subtle, most exquisite ever seen. In fact, art books will often enlarge portions of the painting so that you can see the the mastery of the brushstrokes. That's really my plan today. Today and next Sunday and perhaps the following Sunday, as we look at a different kind of portrait altogether than the Mona Lisa. A portrait that's found in Romans chapter 4. It is a portrait of faith. Paul paints here in Romans 4 a portrait of the faith by which Abraham was justified before God. And I want us to, to put Paul's masterful portrait under a magnifying glass And I want us to examine its brushstrokes in detail. Now just to remind you the context of this passage, Paul began this letter by laying out the need for the gospel. Our personal lack of righteousness, not one of us measures up to God's standards. And when he comes to chapter 3, verse 21, through the end of chapter 3, he then explains the solution, God's solution, the gospel, the good news of how sinful humans like we are, can be made right with a just and holy God. He explained justification by faith, which is at the heart of the gospel he preached. That's chapter 3. When he comes to chapter 4, Paul then lays out for us a biblical defense of justification. And he uses Genesis 15, 6 to show that the Old Testament teaches exactly the same truth that was at the heart of his gospel, the truth of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And specifically, he uses the biblical text about Abraham's justification in order to address several key questions about our justification. Specifically in chapter 4, he addresses three questions. We've, we've already 
finish the first two questions. The first question in verses 1 through 8 is on what basis are we justified or made right with God? On what basis? And Paul's short answer to that is by God's grace. It is not something we earn. It is a gift that is given. It is a gracious offer of God, not earned and merited, but received. The second question in verses 9 through 12 is who can be made right with God? Paul's answer, both Jews and Gentiles. This is truly a universal gospel. It is good for every person on the planet. The third question that he asks and answers here is by what means are we made right with God? By what means are we justified? And we see Paul's answer to this beginning in verse 13 of chapter 4 and running down through the end of the chapter. And his answer is by faith and faith alone. The point of this final section of chapter 4, running all the way from verse 13 down through verse 25, is to show that what happened to Abraham proves that the only means for any sinner to be made right with God is not by law, not by doing something, but rather by faith alone in what God has done in Christ. Now, as he unfolds that answer, he does it in several steps. In verse 13, he simply states the truth. In verses 14 to 16, he argues for that truth. In verses 17 through 22, he illustrates the truth. And then in verses 23 to 25, he applies the truth. He says, listen, this wasn't just for Abraham. This is for us. Now, the last time we studied Romans together, we saw justification by faith alone stated. In verse 13, look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants or his seed that he would be heir of the world, that is, that he would inherit the future kingdom of Messiah, that he would enjoy spiritual blessing, that he would enjoy salvation, was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Abraham received God's promise of justification and eternal inheritance not by something he did in reference to the law, but by means of believing what God had promised. So he states it in verse 13. Secondly, we saw that justification by faith alone is argued in verses 14 to 16. Paul lays out his arguments in defense of the statement he's made, and he begins with some negative arguments. First of all, he says justification cannot be by law, Because law makes faith unnecessary. Verse 14, For if those who are of the law are heirs, that is, inherit the promise of of eternity, the promise of being in Messiah's kingdom, then faith is made void. Why? Well, if you can earn your way, then you don't need to believe a promise God's made. You just need to work harder. Secondly, justification cannot be by law because law nullifies God's promise. Paul goes on in verse 14 to say the promise is nullified. If God's promise of eternal life, if God's promise of a right standing before Him is conditioned on my keeping the law, then His promise is worthless because I'll never keep it adequately in order to earn that promise. No one will ever receive the promise. It's No. Thirdly, 
Justification cannot be by law because law produces only wrath. Verse 15, the law brings about wrath. You see, you can work as hard as you want to try to keep God's law, but you will inevitably break it. And when you break it, you invite, you excite, you bring about the necessary response of God and His justice, which is just anger against your rebellious sin. So when we break God's law, we deserve and earn the just wrath of God against our sin, so we can't be justified by law. It only produces more wrath. Fourthly, we can't be justified by law because law only increases our guilt. Verse 15 continues, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. It doesn't mean if you don't know what the law is, you can't break it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's not as serious. When you don't know the law and you break it, that's not nearly as serious as when you know the law and you willfully, rebelliously choose to break it. So knowing the law actually makes our situation worse because it increases our guilt. Because we know and we still do it. So there's Paul's negative argument. Justification cannot be by law for those reasons. Now in verse 16, he presents the positive argument. Justification must be by faith alone for three reasons. First of all, so that justification can be by grace. Verse 16, for this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Paul is saying, listen, faith and grace fit together, works and grace don't. In other words, he's saying this, you can either be saved by God's grace alone, that is, you get something from God that is completely unearned, unmerited, Or you can try to be saved by works alone, something that is completely earned and completely merited, but you can't be saved by some grace and some works. Because now you're mixing what you've earned with what you have not earned. They don't fit together. But faith, on the other hand, can coexist with grace. Because faith is not earning anything. Faith is simply receiving from God what He has graciously promised. So grace and works don't fit together. But grace and faith do fit together. It had to be by faith so that it could be by grace. Secondly, justification must be by faith alone so that justification can be guaranteed to us. Verse 16 so that the promise will be guaranteed. You say, how does salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, guarantee it to us? Because it's all what God does, and it doesn't depend on our doing. So it can be guaranteed. Unlike if, it was, if we were somehow responsible for accomplishing it. Thirdly, justification must be by faith alone, so that justification can be for everyone Verse 16, the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, that is, believing Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, that's believing Gentiles, who is the father of us all, both believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Verse 17, as it is written, a father of many nations I have made you. It's interesting, Paul there connects the promise that there would be many nations come out of Abraham 
not only with his physical descendants. You understand that out of Abraham have, have come a number of physical people groups. Obviously the Jews, the, the Arab nations through Ishmael, you have Edom. So a number of physical nations have descended from Abraham. But here, Paul connects this promise with Abraham's spiritual descendants, both Jews and Gentiles. The promise of father of many nations, we're the fulfillment of that. We sit on the other side of the world in another nation, and we are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. We're part of the fulfillment of that promise. Now, that's a review of what we've already seen in this passage. But today, as Paul continues to answer the question, by what means are we justified, I want us to see justification by faith alone illustrated. Illustrated. We see this in the middle of verse 17 down through verse 22. Now, I don't ordinarily start a section in the middle of a sentence, as I'm going to do today, but Paul clearly, I think you'll see over the next couple of weeks, changes his direction a bit mid-sentence here, and so I'm going to do that in this case. So let's pick up our reading in verse 16. He says, Abraham is the spiritual father of all of us who've come to believe. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope, against hope, he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since it was, he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, in those verses, Paul uses Abraham's faith as a, a portrait, a living illustration of justifying faith. That is, the kind of faith that justifies. Remember, Paul is still developing his key text, introduced to us back in chapter 4, verse 3, a quotation from Genesis fifteen six. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, Immediately, if you realize that the means of justification, the means of being right with God is faith, the next question you should have is, well, how can I exhibit that kind of faith? What does that kind of faith look like? Paul anticipates that question, and he answers it here. In fact, that's the point of this section I just read to you. Go down to verse 22. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. You see, Paul is making a point that it was through the kind of faith he's just described in the previous verses that God justified Abraham. Now, this is an amazing passage of Scripture. Because if you're not a Christian, these verses will show you what saving faith looks like. They will illustrate how you can believe in a way that brings justification from God. That will make you right with God. It illustrates how you can believe the gospel. But 
Romans wasn't written primarily to unbelievers. It was written primarily to believers like us sitting in first century churches in Rome. So what is the benefit then? What are the reasons for us who are already believers to study this passage together about Abraham's faith? Why should we take the time? Well, there's several really important reasons. Number one, it'll help us comprehend the magnitude of what God has done for us in Christ. If you're sitting here this morning and you have exercised the kind of faith Abraham has exercised, that was a gift to you just like it was to Abraham. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so it will help you come to grips with what God has done for you in looking at the very faith He's given you. Secondly, it will help us know better how to present the, the concept of faith to unbelievers. Thirdly, it will help us examine ourselves to see if our faith is true saving faith. There are a lot of imitations out there. And here we see from God's perspective what real justifying faith looks like. Fourthly, it'll help us understand what faith is and how it works. You see, faith doesn't stop being important the moment after you believe in Christ the first time. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we live by faith. You've got to learn how to exercise faith in an ongoing way like Abraham did. You have to grow in that spiritual virtue that the writer of Hebrews said, without which it is impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So what exactly does saving faith look like? Well, in this seminal text, Paul identifies for us several key qualities of true saving faith. I will tell you that I really believe with all my heart that this is the best explanation and illustration of the kind of faith that justifies in the entire Scripture. And I think you'll agree with me by the time we're done over the next couple of weeks. This is a portrait of Abraham's faith, but it is so much more. Paul uses the portrait of Abraham's faith to illustrate for us what justifying faith looks like. So this is a pattern, a pattern of saving faith. Let's look at it together then. The first quality of truth saving faith is that saving faith is biblical faith. Saving faith is biblical faith. Now let me just warn you, we're going to get no further than that point today. Because this is crucial. This is foundational. In chapter 4 of Romans, Paul uses the, the verb believe six times, and he uses the noun faith ten times. Now in English, we know those two words are related, but they're not from the same family. In Greek, they are. In Greek, the noun faith is pistis, and the verb believe is pistuo. Pistis, pistuo. They're from the same family of words. This is biblical faith. Now, where did this word group come from? Well, if you've been a part of our church any time at all, you've heard me talk about the Septuagint. What was the Septuagint? Well, a hundred or two hundred years before Christ, the people of Israel 
had lost, for the most part, the ability to speak Hebrew. Only the scholars could speak and read Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament scriptures, Hebrew and Aramaic. And so, most of the people could speak Greek. It was the English of the day because of the influence of Alexander the Great. And so, 100, 200 years before Christ, the scholars translated the Hebrew scriptures, which the average person couldn't read, into Greek, the language they could read. That was the Septuagint, is what it was called. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, A Portrait of Faith. Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Mm